This podcast contains real talk about the mayhem of motherhood, along with a weekly medical mystery. Because all of these topics can be pretty graphic, and because we use explicit language, listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the Motherhood, Mayhem, and Medical Mysteries podcast. On this show, we are not attempting to solve the major medical mysteries of the world or tell you how to raise your kids. We are definitely not doctors or scientists of any kind. We are just two moms here to provide you with support, resources, and maybe a few laughs along the way. We do a lot of research and will definitely share the things we learn, but please talk to a professional if you have specific concerns about your experiences. Here's Miranda. She's a dog person. And that's Mel. She's a cat girl. So, Miranda, you know how I like to run, right? Yeah. It's, it's kind of a, it's a thing I've always done. And I've been running a good bit lately because it's been nice out, hot, actually, honestly. And I was just remembering the other day, do you recall that time that I was running and I tripped on a speed bump? <laughs> I forgot about that time. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. You didn't trip on a speed bump on this run, did you? You're okay, no, right? no, I didn't. I didn't. Uh, okay, we, this our neighborhood here. We have the uh, the speed humps. Much harder. Oh, yes. to trip, much harder humps. to trip over. Um, <laughs> okay, but I so was just so no about it. tripping today. Did you run no. over the speed bump, the memorial speed bump that you tripped oh, over on no, your run today? I, I, Is that I what haven't happened? been. I haven't been back over that way. I I just. It came into my mind that I, you know, I was recalling that. And this is not a story that I'm proud of, but I feel like um, (laughs) some of our listeners might relate to it and appreciate knowing that if they're clumsy, they're not the only ones. Yeah. Um, So here's the story. I was running and in my defense, I was very, very distracted. And and I think you'll agree with me when I say that exercising when distracted is really can be very dangerous. Oh, yeah. Super dangerous. I've almost dropped like an entire weight rack on my hand before. But why were you yeah. so distracted? Well, I mean, that's actually kind of a sad answer. This happened like a year almost to the day after my friend Jess passed away. That's so right. So I was thinking about that. And then I had sort of this like lumpy spot on my breast so I was like mm. all in my head worried you know because Jess passed away from cancer and so oh it was like valid gosh. it was valid reasons to be yeah. distracted right but those are like some heavy things to be ruminating on while you're running around the neighborhood my yeah. gosh well the dangerous thing about me is I do some of my best thinking while I'm running so this is true um, so here's how it happened. I was all distracted. I was worried. I was like, well, I'll just go on a run and, you know, think it through, whatever, whatever. Yeah. And when I run, I typically run like two and a half miles. I- I'm too lazy to get to the whole 5K. I do like two, two and a half miles, whatever. 
It's yeah. not it's not like the best exercise ever, but I enjoy it. So I was coming around at the time. Jared and I were living at, at a different place, and I was distracted and for whatever reason did not even notice that I was running towards the speed bump. My foot caught on it. I fell, but I had my new phone. You remember that detail? Oh, I had my, my gosh. I had my new phone in my hand because I didn't have shorts with pockets. Yeah. I've never bought shorts without pockets. Again, Always opt for pockets. Always, Always opt for pockets, pockets, ladies. Always do it. But oh, what man. ended up happening is because that hand was holding the phone and literally I had just gotten the phone. I didn't <laughs> I didn't catch myself. Yeah. Yeah. You just so, tuck and rolled. So Miranda, tell our friends if you remember the injuries that I had from that. It was I mean, it was bad and i i had forgotten about this particular incident until we brought it up but i want to say like the entire like side of your arm was like road rash like your shoulder and like all the way down your arm was just like you had fallen off of the back of a motorcycle was kind of what you looked like i still have a spot that has no freckles on my shoulder because i I have very freckly shoulders. Very and freckly. And I skinned the freckles right off. And they, <laughs> and they never back. came back. They said, they nope, did. it's too dangerous. We are I, staying away from this girl. <laughs> but I remember the one of the most painful things that happened in that fall was my right hand, which I was using to catch myself. Phone was in the left hand. Right yeah. hand went down to the ground landed on a rock and so i split like right in the middle of my hand i skinned my knee i mean it was a whole oh yeah the knee was the knee was really bad too Mm -hmm. yeah that was a bad time so what about your phone what happened to your phone were you able to protect it one scratch like one tiny little scratch on the corner and it was fine Okay. Well, you know, sometimes you got to sacrifice the body and save what's important. So what did you do? I mean, you come to your senses. You're you're at least a mile from your house. You're bloody and covered in gravel. What happened next? Well, I really hate to admit it, but that is not the first time that I have fallen while I was running. (laughs) Um you just have to pull yourself up and get back home and that's what I did um I was definitely bloody and then I walk in the house and my husband is like what happened to you (laughs) what happened to you (laughs) a speed bump a speed bump oh my gosh Mel versus the speed bump and the speed bump won this time the speed bump won this time Speed bump one. So my lesson to all of you is one, don't be ashamed if you're clumsy because many of us are. Two, always buy shorts or leggings with pockets for your phone so you have both hands to catch yourselves. Mm-hmm. And try not to exercise when you're way, way, way distracted. Okay, Miranda, so what is our parenting topic for this week? Today, I thought I would pick something that was apropos, apropos, apropos. It felt apropos to use it in the moment, so I I just went for it. 
That was fun. <laughs> I went for it. And we that are was coming a, up. That was a fun journey you took us on. <laughs> Go ahead. We are coming up on end of year testing for these school age kiddos. And I know Ooh. you and I, we've got kids in school, in elementary school. And this is like one of those topics that kind of hits us right in the right in the heart, you know, this time of year. Because it's a lot to deal with. It's a lot to deal with. So it's, I want to kind it's of... It's one of those things. It's like the kids are like super excited because it's the end of the year, but then it's like also really stressful. Right. It's like also you have to take all of these tests. No pressure, yeah. but um, it's the end of the year. So be happy. But also you have all these tests to take. So have fun right. with that. Very yeah, confusing. And I remember even when I was a kid in school, like end of year testing time was so... It was just annoying to me. Like, I was just annoyed by the fact that I had to take tests at the end of the year. I wanted to just do fun things and hang out. And, yes. And you know. I remember that feeling being especially intense the last couple years of high school. Oh, God, yes. Yes. Because all you want to do is senior skip day. Okay. Mm -hmm. So let's get in to this awesome topic. Now, there's a lot of, I guess, you could call it a, a mild controversy, maybe. Maybe some people have really strong opinions about end-of-year testing in general. I do want to kind of highlight some legislation, like why do we even have to do this? Uh, and really, it's because there are laws. So your school, if your kid is in a public school, is legally required to participate in these end-of-year tests. So I kind of dug into this a little bit. So, of course, we had the No Child Left Behind Act. We're all pretty familiar with that. That was passed in 2002 by George W. Bush. And then in 2015, they kind of looked at No Child Left Behind and they updated it to the Every Student Succeeds Act, which just can we take a moment and appreciate how much more positive that sounds than No Child Left Behind? <laughs> like Every Student yeah. Succeeds sounds way better than No Child Left Behind, in my opinion. But I, that yeah, was... No, I, I agree. Yeah, it's like, okay, put a positive spin on it. But that was passed in 2015 and updated a lot of No Child Left Behind. So ESSA, Every Student Succeeds Act, requires that every third through eighth grader in U.S. public schools take these tests that are calibrated to state standards. And it also requires that the aggregate results of those tests be made public. Ultimately, they use all of that performance data so they can illustrate which schools are doing well and which schools may need to implement interventions so they can improve outcomes for students who maybe didn't perform as well. Gotcha. Okay. I Pretty didn't realize that was all out there. Uh, yeah. Some of you all, if you live in southern states like us, you might not want to look at that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, we're, we're not really well known here for, you know, high we achieving sure public are. schools. <laughs> yeah. And I would be curious, like teachers who do have like more information on this topic, like those of you who are listening to our podcast, like we'd love to kind of get some feedback from you on that and how that like impacts you and your classrooms um, and any tips that you have for, for parents as well. But so that's kind of why we have to take these tests. It's okay. a law. So we can't really get around that. It's not like your school just decided, oh, this is what we're going to do. No, it's in legislation. But these tests are actually used for a lot of different things. So they can actually use the aggregate scores of these tests to determine how much funding your child's school can receive. Wow. They... No, no pressure. No, right. No. 
no pressure on anybody at all. Just yep. You know. They can they can use it at a more individual level to look at your child and what their class placement should be, or even if they should be allowed to move up to the next grade or not. And I think that's kind of what we're most familiar with as parents mm-hmm. is, you know, your individual child's performance. But they look at those aggregate scores and look at the performance of the whole school, too. So typically there's two types of tests. There's achievement tests and there's aptitude tests. So achievement tests are kind of past looking, like they look at what your child already knows or what they've been able to learn about a specific subject. So they can tell whether your child knows which president signed the new deal or whatever after the Great Depression. Like that's the kind of thing an achievement test is going to measure. But then there's also aptitude tests and those tests are future looking and they predict your child's ability to learn by measuring your child's reasoning, critical thinking, and even their problem solving skills. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I kind of think about it as ones looking behind and one's looking ahead. So what have they learned and then what are they capable of learning in the future is kind of the, that is the two just different tests. an interesting concept altogether that it's yeah. like a test that kind of spells out what they think you might be able to learn. Mm-hmm. And it like seems the, like there's a lot of variables in that. Oh, there's a ton of variables. But the most common aptitude test is like the ACT um, and SATs that are college placement tests. They're looking at your potential to be successful in college. So they don't expect you to know everything on the ACT, but it's more about how can you use what you've learned and reason and think critically through all of these other things. That's really interesting. I was going to ask you that, but I didn't want to put you on the spot. So the ACT is a aptitude test is that what you said yep okay well that makes sense because I certainly didn't know most of the answers on there (laughs) yeah yeah and I really don't think they expect you to it's it's more so just how can you think through things so so that's a good question to ask like as a parent and and kind of be aware of is this test measuring what my child already knows and we need to study those things they already know or is this test more just kind of gauging their ability to learn and think critically that kind of changes the whole way that you would plan to help your child even study and think about the test right yeah definitely do you want to hear some statistics a few maybe uh, how about three statistics is that sound i like good? it three is okay. a good number okay i'll give you three statistic number one students take an average of 112 standardized tests between pre-k and grade 12 wow 112 tests isn't that crazy that is that is crazy and those are just the standardized ones those aren't even like the subject matter ones that you take in each class that's wild so there was also a study that was done by the center for american american progress and they looked at 14 school districts and it found that students between grades three and eight take an average of 10 to 20 standardized tests per year that's a lot Okay, here's kind of an interesting one. Here's kind of a thinker. Girls tend to perform better on questions with open-ended answers, according to a 2018 study by Stanford University's Sean Reardon. The same study found that test format alone, and this kind of blew my mind, test format alone accounts for 25% of the gender difference in performance in both reading and math. Wow. Just the format of the test. Is it open-ended? Is it multiple choice? 
what's how is the test kind of structured and that alone can account for up to 25% of the gender differences that they that they check and we know they're looking for a lot of different demographics between girls and boys and there's kind of been historically people have said that boys tend to do better with math girls tend to do better with language arts and writing and things like that that's going to be really interesting to see because i know you know the way that we even understand gender is changing so much so i'm just curious to see how these tests and and trends are going to have to recalibrate given what we now know about about gender differences so yeah it's a lot to think about like all the different statistical stuff will have to, you know, they'll have to revisit that, Mm -hmm. I guess is the best way to put it. But that seems like a huge difference to me, that just the this format can have that much of an effect. Yeah. Those were your three statistics. Don't you love them? I do. I think it's great. Wonderful. Well, now I want to get to the meat and potatoes of what we're here to talk about, and that is how do we help our child prepare for these tests? I was hoping that's what you were going to get to. (laughs) I think that's the most important thing we want to know as parents is, hey, I can't change these laws. I can't change, you know, some of these statistics and some of these trends, but maybe I can make a little bit of an influence and make a little bit of a difference in how my child is going to be successful in their performance on these standardized tests at the end of the year. So... I found a really cool article. It's actually from Scholastic. Um, I'm a fan. I'm a fan of Scholastic, you know, the Scholastic Book Fair and all of this. I mean, who doesn't love a book fair? I love the Scholastic stuff. And I actually just recently ordered Fisher some stuff from their website. And I don't I don't even mean to be giving a plug for Scholastic right now. Maybe there's a bunch of haters, but their website is actually super awesome. Like I would highly recommend going to their website and like picking out books for your kid because it's so intuitive. It was such a great format. And they even like came up with this survey at the end and they were like, how did you like your experience using our website? And I'm usually not the person who fills out surveys, but I was like, this is like the best website ever. And I'm going to fill this survey out and let them know how great it is. So again, Scholastic isn't paying me to say this. This is just my own opinion. (laughs) But check it out. It's pretty cool stuff on there. And this article was really helpful. Hit us with it. How are we helping kiddos? Okay, I want to give you six tips, all right? All right. um, To help your child prepare. And I want to undergird that with knowing that good habits for test success are really they really need to be fostered all year long. So you can't expect to like do a really, really crappy job all year long with your child and like their study habits and then accept expect them to like perform, you know, amazingly in the last two weeks when you throw all your resources into that. That's that's not the thing here. You have to show up every day and help your kid. So in other words, you can't just use these six tips now for the end of the school year, but you can implement them next school year all year long. And I mean, you can try, like you can definitely try. try. I mean, okay. <laughs> I'm here for it, but let us know how it works. Um, but a- another big part of this is just your attitude towards school in general. You know, do you uh, have a more positive negative attitude or a more negative attitude? It just depends. Okay. So six tips. Tip number one is optimize your child's brain power by building strong routines. And the two most important routines, what would you think that they are? Morning and bedtime. That's exactly right. 
That's exactly right. These two routines have such a huge impact on your child's brain health. Having good sleep hygiene, a strong morning routine that includes a balanced breakfast is going to just set your child up for long-term success. Uh, when it comes to performing and, and having to do this. Now, the day before the test, it's a really good idea. And I know a lot of us as moms do this anyway. Prepare like what you need for the day the night before. Make sure you've got pencils. Make sure you've got calculators. Make sure you have water bottles. Whatever you need, have it all laid out the night before so you don't have to like start the morning off like really stressful, trying to find stuff and get everything together. Good tip. I have some work to do in that area. (laughs) Sometimes that's hard. Our mornings tend to be more like that scene in Home Alone when they realize that their their alarm didn't go off and they're late for the plane. Oh, no. (laughs) Well, I have to hand it to my husband because he's the one that gets up with Fisher. I'm not a morning person, but Bradley gets up every morning with him and they've got their little routine. And on the days that Brad is gone, like for work and I have to sub in... It's bad. It's really bad. It it shows up. It makes a, a difference. A mad a mad dash is what yeah. it is around here. <laughs> oh yeah. Yep, I feel that. All right, tip number two is encourage good study habits and challenge your child's critical thinking skills. So a couple good things to do here. Really important to just make sure you're maintaining good communication with your child's teacher throughout the year. That's going to give you a good sense of how you can help them build good study habits. And one of the best things you can do is just review some test-taking strategies like process of elimination when it comes to multiple choice. uh, There's a lot of things you can do to help them like improve reading comprehension and these kinds of things. Reading is so important. And if you can encourage your child to just read as much as possible, doesn't matter if it's, I don't know, a comic book. If it's something they enjoy reading, let them read. Just encourage that. And then ask your child to discuss their ideas and voice their opinion often and stimulate those critical thinking skills. So Fisher is learning about facts and opinions right now. So we, it's really funny. So we made up this little game and we'll play it while we're driving. And like, I'll make a statement and then he has to say whether it's a fact or an opinion. But it's not only that he says it's a fact or an opinion. He explains to me why he knows it's a fact or an opinion. And that's the critical thinking piece. Awesome. Tip number three is know what to expect. So this kind of goes back to finding out what kind of test it is. Is it an achievement test? Is it an aptitude test? What is the test going to measure? What's the format? Is it multiple choice? Is it short answer? And how will your, your child be preparing in school? I think it's just so important to gather as much information as you can about that test because the more you know, the more you're going to be able to help your child prepare successfully. And you can kind of have a conversation with your kid depending on how old they are about what is the test going to entail and really set them up for it to kind of reinforce the things their teacher is telling them. Tip number four is look at your child's past performance. So look at what your students' strengths and weaknesses are and really try to pick activities and exercises that are going to reinforce their weaker subjects. Uh, One of the things I love to use are those little workbooks. And, you know, I'll just find like a workbook on math or workbook on reading and we'll just do like a couple of worksheets at home and then build that into our routine where, you know, you can earn some screen time 
time or you can earn some TV time or you can earn something if you do a couple of worksheets. I was just at, um, I think I was at Dollar General the other day and they have those little workbooks like in the coloring book section. Yeah, yeah. So it's, they're very accessible, I guess is the best way to put it. Mm -hmm. They're not expensive. You can buy like literally a stack of them. Um, Amazon even has a bunch of them that are like $5 for like a big thick activity book. I like to use them because we're really trying to work with Fisher right now on his handwriting. And that's just a really good way, no matter what he's doing, he's holding a pencil and he's working on his handwriting, whether he's going through a maze or doing a word search, he's just getting used to those fine motor skills. So look at their past performance, find those strengths and weaknesses and see what you can do to really hone in and focus on those weaknesses. Okay, tip number five. We're already on number five. Nice. Number five is provide practiced opportunities. So if there's practice tests that you can get your hands on, I know ACT and SCT have a ton. Those are really super helpful. You can start practicing those ahead of time and kind of introduce your child to what the test is going to contain. But try to keep those study sessions short and focused and try to set really small goals to help measure progress. And the very last tip of all, and this is my favorite one of all, now that I've given all these others, relax and remain positive. I feel like that should have been tip number one. If your child is able to learn some relaxation skills, this can really improve their outcome on a test. The best test takers are always going to be confident, committed, and at ease. So you can help your child learn some really, really basic relaxation techniques that will help them to relieve any stress or test anxiety or nerves about those kinds of things. Funny story about me and taking a test. I actually started my master's program right after Fisher was born, which meant that I had to take the GRE when I was pregnant. And I was nine months pregnant when I took the GRE. It was so hilarious. Very pregnant. Now, listeners, you should know she ended up being pregnant for 10 and a half months, approximately. (laughs) It's true. There was more time than we thought, but... (laughs) Oh, it felt like forever. But I remember like going in to take this test and it was at this little uh, little testing center in our town. And I was the only person there that day. And again, I am like nine months pregnant. Like I am huge. And, you know, anytime you go to one of these testing centers, you have to like get fingerprinted and like give a saliva sample and you have to have your photo ID and all of this stuff. It's like a whole process. You have to lock your belongings away in the locker and they confiscate the key. Well, again, nine months pregnant. I'm pretty sure I had to pee during the GRE exam like at least five times. And again, I'm the only one in there. And what was hilarious was every time I had to like take a break from the test to go pee, the poor guy working in there is like, I need to see your ID. And I'm literally looking at him like, who else could you confuse me with right now in this moment? I am a massive whale of a lady. I'm the only one here. It was hilarious. It's a whole protocol thing. And like, I remember the last time I took one of those, it was like, I was the only person there and I checked in and then I had to pee mid test and I'm like, 
It, shouldn't there be a clause in your like rules that you only have to ID me once if one you're time. the same proctor and I'm one the same time. person? And I'm the only one here. But no, every time in and out, he had to see my ID oh before I went. I had to like tell him my social security number and like my three worst fears every time I went in and out of <laughs> no the room. Kidding, like right? yeah. <laughs> it was terrible. But all of that to say, I had a lot of test anxiety during that day. I was like, am I even going to be able to do well, this I can imagine you had to pay a lot <laughs> so bad but part of what I I did when I took advantage of those breaks is I took some deep breaths I did some some stretches and these are really important things could. to do <laughs> with a child pressing on my diaphragm but no um, you can teach your child some of these great breathing exercises and things that they can do to release tension so deep breathing some stretches and I know there's a lot of teachers out there that are doing this as part of their giving the test they'll allow those stretch breaks and lead those stretch breaks and chair yoga and all these really cool things thank you teachers so much for doing that because it improves their brain performance when you give those little breaks last thing I want to mention there is try to not transfer your own worries and concern onto your child so if you have any nerves about them you know passing the test and you're kind of worried that they may not pass and things like that try your very best to not transfer that to them that's just going to put more stress on them and probably make them perform even worse it's hard to do though because we're stressed and we have a lot going on well i just have one last thing i want to mention that i feel is is important here and this is for um parents of children with disabilities test taking can be really especially nerve-wracking if your child has some type of disability and there are a lot of accommodations out there whether your child has an IEP or a 504 plan if they're going to be taking these standardized tests and you feel that they need an accommodation please reach out to your child's teacher right away so that you can get connected with your school's resource program and provide your child with what they need there's so many great accommodations for test taking like oral administration where somebody will actually read the test out loud to your child Uh, they also offer like extended or even unlimited test time they will allow for supervised breaks during some tests maybe your child needs a quiet room or some other environmental Mm -hmm. accommodation they can provide all of that even like assistive technology that your child may need so if you think hey my child would be so much more successful if they had fill in the blank let your child's teacher know what's in that blank and see what you can do to advocate for your child to get them what they need. Absolutely. And do it early. Even if you if you think it's something they're going to need because there are procedures and protocol that exist and they take time like everything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But yeah, advocate for your kiddos if they need if they need extra help or you think they might need extra help, make sure that those things are being looked into. Well, Melanie, what is our medical mystery today that you are going to demystify for our listeners? Okay, y'all might laugh at first here, but I am going to do my best to demystify sunburn. Okay, I'll take it. That's a (laughs) surprise. That's a surprise. (laughs) Summer is coming up, and I don't know why, but it hit me the other day. I'm like... What exactly is a sunburn? You know? Yeah. It's weird. Our skin it is gets weird. all red. Why? What is yeah. happening? Yeah. So 
It is a bit of a shallow dive, but I'm going to try to hit the highlights here. And as always, our sources are going to be listed um, in the show notes. But I use a lot of information from a couple different articles from MD Anderson Cancer Center. And one of their dermatologists there, um, her name is Dr. George. So credit credit to her and to MD Anderson. Anyway, yeah. sunburn. It is not the same as when you burn your skin on something hot. Now, all right. I think we all realize that on some level, but we're going to dig into that a little bit. When we think of a burn, we tend to think of heat, but it's not the sun's heat that burns our skin. Sunburns come from the ultraviolet radiation or UV rays causing damage to the skin. That's why you can still get sunburned if it's cold out. So it's not the heat. It's not a heat burn. Yeah, yeah. I've already learned something. It's a radiation burn. That sounds way worse. (laughs) It does sound way worse. It's an inflammatory reaction to UV radiation. It causes damage to the skin's outermost layer. When the ultraviolet radiation from the sun reaches the skin, it damages the skin cells and causes mutations in their DNA. What? That sounds terrifying, but that's what's actually happening. Turns you into a sun mutant. So here's a quote from Dr. George. Our bodies have a lot of amazing mechanisms to prevent and even correct these mutations. But if the skin cells get more UV exposure than they can handle, the damage may be beyond repair and the cells will die off. Blood vessels dilate to increase the blood flow and bring immune cells to the skin to help clean up the mess. All of this is what causes the redness, swelling, and inflammation that we associate with sunburn. I don't know about you, but that kind of blew my mind. So you're actually getting red because your body is trying to help get rid of or take care of the damaged cells that are on the surface. Whoa. It's almost like it's from the inside out and not the outside in, if that makes sense. It very much changed how I perceive the whole thing. So, of course, eventually a sunburn will heal, but some of the surviving cells will have mutations that escape repair, and those Mm -hmm. are the cells that could eventually become cancerous. Which, of course, is our main concern when it comes to sun issues. Yeah. Now, there's a more complex layer under all of this, um, and that is melanin. Yeah, yeah. My name is Melanie, so I know a little (laughs) bit about that. But melanin, of course, is the pigment that gives our skin its color and defends Mm -hmm. it against the sun's rays. So melanin works by darkening your unprotected, sun-exposed skin, and the amount of melanin that each of us has is determined by genetics and a number of different factors. In truth, both sunburn and getting tan are signs of cellular damage to the skin. Getting tan is too? Correct. Ah, that's I terrible. Well, that's terrible is... news. It is terrible news, but I I thought it was really interesting. Well, I just want to say I love to get a tan because especially after like post-child, there's 
a lot of cellulite on my body that didn't used to be there. And don't get me wrong, I definitely hit the gym. But also, as one of my good friends once said, if you can't tone it, tan it. And I believe that with all my heart. So I try my best every year to get my tan. And I love it. I love getting, I love the sun on my body. It feels so good. All right. It's important for me to state, I'm not trying to tell you not to get a tan, but I just want you to be aware that a tan is kind of a early sign of some cellular damage. So you can get a tan, but do it safely. And I'll get to that in a minute because I'm going to talk about the the ways to be safe. I want a safe tan. Now, (laughs) I don't know that there is a wholly safe tan, but we'll get you the safest tan we can. Now, (laughs) after a sunburn, your skin may start to peel. And that peeling is a sign that your body is rejecting those damaged cells. What? So it's like letting go. It's like shedding it's them. It's like shedding them. Like, wow. So in, in, for all intents and purposes, peeling is a good thing. Do you like it? Do you like to like peel the I don't, skin? I don't like it because <laughs> I don't like how sensitive the skin under it feels. Like That's the peeling true. part, if I'm peeling somebody else's, I like that. I don't like yeah. my own being peeled. <laughs> Okay, a few things that I wanted to touch on. Of course, some people are more prone to sunburn than others, and this is determined by, you know, how fair-skinned you are. Our ginger friends out there, they are very fair-skinned and Mm -hmm. burn very easily if we're not careful. Another womp-womp thing to consider is that even without a burn, sun exposure raises the skin cancer risk. So even if you are tan or your skin type is dark, it can still cause cellular damage. So just keep that in mind. The sun is not always our friend. The UV index is a big factor in all of this. And the UV index refers to how intense the sun is based on where you're at. And I don't know about you, Miranda, but Jeremy and I have traveled a few times to places much closer to the equator and you burn much faster there because the sun is strongest and the uv index is higher now of course you can still get burnt on an overcast day up to 80 percent of uv rays can penetrate clouds which i thought was crazy i've actually heard that you get more tan when it's a cloudy day because it's almost like the clouds magnify the uv rays I did not find that in my research, but 80% of them get through. That may be like an old wives' tale. Maybe. Yeah. Repeated sunburns, of course, raise your risk for skin cancer, which is the thing that we're trying to avoid here uh, in the long term. Uh, Even one, and this is terrifying to me. I'm sorry. I promise I will stop with the terrifying stuff in a second, (laughs) and I'm going to talk about how we can prevent these types of situations but even one blistering sunburn in childhood or adolescence more than doubles our chances of developing melanoma later in life now do you know anyone who got through childhood or adolescence without a blistering sunburn i no. i feel like it's a rite of passage i feel like we've all been there yeah and so another thing to consider is that skin damage builds up over time starting with your very first sunburn so the more you burn the rate 
the greater the risk for skin cancer. And subsequent UV damage can incur to those cells that are already damaged. So you're damaging damaged cells, so to speak. It's just like a um, vicious cycle, especially yeah. when you consider like the cell's DNA is now mutated, like you said. Right. So five or more sunburns doubles your risk of developing melanoma. So wow. so it's already doubled if you had a blistering sunburn, and then it doubles again if you've had five or more, which I would venture to say we all have. I, I mean, definitely have. I definitely have. Anybody who's done anything that has you out on the water, like I scuba dove for years, and mm-hmm. I know, Miranda, your family has a boat. Like anything around water, you get burnt. Oh, yeah. And it's one of those things like you don't even think about it because you're just outside all day long and you may do that first initial application. You get distracted. And especially if you're outside, like you said, you're playing in the water, you're sweating, it's washing off of you and you don't ever reapply it. That's where I'm sure the problem really comes into play. Yeah. So that is a very good segue into my next section, which I felt was very important for us to touch on, especially at this point in the year. Summer is coming up quick. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, our kids are taking those end of course or end of year exams. So we need to be ready with our sunscreen. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to talk about how sunscreen works because I like to talk about how everything works. That's just who I am. And I Um, love that about you. (laughs) Thank you. Not everyone feels that way, but it's fine. (laughs) So there are two types of sunscreen. And if you really step back and think about this, we all know this. But there are physical blockers. And these are types of sunscreen that reflect the UV rays from the sun. And they typically contain one or, well, there's two different active ingredients. These are like the white, thick, like zinc oxide or titanium dioxide. They sit on the surface of the skin and reflect the UV rays like a shield or a mirror kind of deal. Oh, wow. Gotcha. So it's physically blocking the sun from getting to your skin. Gotcha. Would you think of that? I it's like the classic, like the across the nose, yeah. like the white, like yeah. that kind of stuff. Oh yeah. But if anyone has ever tried to put that kind of stuff on, it's the worst. It's terrible. It's the worst. It's so bad. Okay. Yeah. Which brings us to the second type. Those are called chemical blockers, and those contain chemicals that absorb the sun's UV rays. So the chemicals within them absorb the rays. They're not oh. stopping the rays from getting to your skin, but they're absorbing the rays so that the UV part isn't getting to your skin. They are like taking one for the team. They are. And that's they form, cool. They I form never knew that. A Thin protective film that absorbs UV radiation before it's able to penetrate the skin. Now, of course, what these are made of vary by where they're at. But in the U.S., they typically include a list of very hard to say words. I'm going (laughs) to do my best on. Aminobenzoic acid, avobenzone, acetylate, and oxybenzone. Benzone. So, like I said, mm. they're chemicals. Yeah, lots now, of benzos in there. Yeah. The thing to think about, um, physical sunscreens, and that's the blockers, the physical blockers, 
generally don't cause skin irritation or allergic reactions, but they can be white and greasy and they're gross. Like, yeah. like you and I, they're gross. They're just um, very pasty and they take forever to spread on. I will say it's helpful because you can see what you've, what areas you've got and what areas you haven't, but it's yeah. just a lot. It's a lot. Well, and then if you're the person that has it on, it feels gross too. Yeah, not great. So that's the downfall of the physical blockers. The chemical sunscreens are usually clear and easy to apply, but they are more likely to cause skin irritation, and some folks have allergies to them. It's it's more mm. common for people to have allergies to those. A lot of sunscreens out there contain both, so it'll be, you know, it'll be some physical element and some chemical element and many broad spectrum coverage sunscreens need a combination of ingredients to protect against because you're trying to protect against both uva and uvb rays which those are the two types that cause damage to our skin as i was researching this i found that there's actually a whole lot of negative press for the chemical blocking sunscreens Really? I mean, you can do like a quick Google search and there are articles for days. And I'm not saying that there's nothing to that, but I did find this one fact. The one that gets the worst rap is oxybenzone. And it has been shown to be what they call a hormone disruptor. It it leads to what we were what we always say is do research. Do your research yeah, before definitely. you jump on these bandwagons of oh, I saw this thing on Facebook that that, that chemical sunscreen will blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Do your research. A hormone disruptor is a chemical that has the ability to cross the cell membranes and may interfere with your body's natural hormone production. So there's actually a lot of press out there talking about these sunscreens that can cause issues with hormones. And I, you know me, Miranda, I start digging and I keep digging. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm but glad there you was do. One there was one very widely seen article that was shared on many different platforms. There was a study that was done because of it, and it found, it, it basically is saying that there's these issues because there was a study done on rats. Mm-hmm. And, and in all reality, the rats were actually fed the oxybenzone, like it wasn't oh, put yeah, on yeah, that's their completely skin. different, yeah. But regardless, this study found that it would take an individual... 277 years of sunscreen use to achieve the equivalent systemic dose that produced the effect in rats. See, I love that. Like, I love it when these studies break it down on that level because there are a lot of things that are tested on animals and animal testing is like, whew, that's a whole other topic that's for a whole a, other yeah, day. I'm not, I've, we I don't even want to go down that rabbit hole, no pun intended. But like, we that are here hole. to just say, whoa. <laughs> Don't it's, want to go down that like, rat hole. <laughs> Sorry. It's just like you you have to understand the information of how those studies are used because it doesn't always translate perfectly to you as a human and your body. Like they're giving these rats, they're feeding them probably super, super large doses of this thing. And then by the time you actually break that down for what a human would be putting on their skin, 
it's right. literally you said 277 years correct and oh my science gosh hasn't advanced far enough that any of us are living to be 277 years old so i feel like you're wowzers wowzers oh my goodness that was slightly off topic but i just thought that it was so hilarious that i had to i had to share that so folks when you are looking for a sunscreen for your upcoming summer fun yay you need to select one that provides spf 30 or higher so 30 or higher why can't you do why can't you do because like i've used tanning oils that are literally like spf 4 (laughs) like what does spf even mean that's a really good question. What does SPF mean? You would you would ask me that uh, now. <laughs> Something I should have looked up before. Uh, um, okay. Sun protection factor? Sun protection factor. Yes, I remembered it. That's my achievement test for the day. Okay, listen, everyone. The most important thing is that you pick one that is SPF 30 or higher. SPF means sun protection factor, and it is a measure of how well the sunscreen will protect the skin against UVB rays. And those are the kind that most often cause sunburn, damaged skin, and contribute to skin cancer. So listen, Miranda throw your tanning oil out the sun protection factor or spf scale is not linear so spf 15 blocks against 93 percent of uvb rays where spf 30 blocks 97 percent of uvb rays and spf 50 blocks 98 percent So this is giving me like flashbacks to when you're like on a budget, but you're shopping for ground beef. What you really want (laughs) is the 93% lean, but what you can afford is the 70-30, which you don't really want. Yeah, you don't want that. But it'll taste better anyway. (laughs) Anyway, when looking for sunscreen, be sure to choose one that has a sun protection factor or SPF of 30 or higher. It has to have broad spectrum protection, which means it protects against both UVA and UVB rays Hmm. and is water resistant. Because let's be real, most of the things that we're doing out in the sun involve water. And even if they don't, your sweat contains water. So make sure it's water resistant. Sunscreen should be applied liberally and reapplied every two hours. Okay, there you have it. Two hours. Good to know. It's important to keep in mind that sunscreen is, of course, just one way to protect your skin from the sun. There's all those clothes, sun shirts and hats and umbrellas and all of that stuff. The best sunscreen is one that you'll wear regularly. Because that's the most important part. Are you actually going to wear it? Yeah. Are you going to put it on? Right. So those are my tips, my shallow dive into what's going on with sunscreen. I did feel compelled as a former marine science major to Mm -hmm. mention, I'm sure you've noticed that many of the sunscreens are now saying reef safe or reef friendly. 
Yeah. And I've always wondered exactly what that meant. Reef safe or reef friendly, that terminology is typically used to identify sunscreens that do not contain oxybenzone or octanazate, which are two common UV blocking chemicals. And studies have shown that those can contribute to coral bleaching. Oh, wow. And we all know that the last thing we need in this world is more coral bleaching. So if y'all are doing something that's in the ocean, make sure you're getting one of those reef-safe or reef-friendly sunscreens. Definitely. And I know a lot of uh, cities now, like, they they so-called require that. I don't know how they could, like, actually enforce it besides coming around and, like, confiscating everybody's sunscreen. Sunscreen police? The sunscreen police are out there. You know, these kinds of sunscreens are allowed. And yeah. maybe it's, like, they only allow retailers to sell those types of sunscreens, too, in their be. area. Um, I yeah. know that it's all very clearly labeled at this point. But so and just another thing to think about. We've got yeah, to take care a good of our one. oceans and uh, Mother Earth. Thank you so much for teaching us all about sunburns. That was some really enlightening information. And I, for one, am going to be slathering myself and my entire family in sunscreen and or sunblock. I can see it in your eyes over there that you have a spotlight that you have for us. <laughs> I, of course I do. I almost always have a spotlight because you rarely do. Um, I, it's true. <laughs> I fall short. Our spotlight for this episode is the Skin Cancer Foundation. Okay. Now, and I did get some of my information from their website. Great website. Like Scholastic. Great website. We recommend it. But since 1979, the Skin Cancer Foundation has set the standard for educating the public and the medical community about skin cancer It's prevention by means of sun protection, the need for early detection, and prompt effective treatment. They provide education, free screenings, and funding for research. So they're they're good folks. Mm -hmm. Um, Their website is www.skincancer.org. Org. Awesome. And we will put a link to them on our show notes and our social media pages. And speaking of social media, we absolutely love connecting with our listeners on our Facebook and our Instagram. We've also kicked off a Pinterest page that we would love for you to follow. We'll just be putting out some info there and trying to collaborate and and bring some great pens to that board to kind of talk about all of these different motherhood and medical issues for sure. But one thing that Melanie and I wanted to make sure that we said today was how much we appreciate you guys listening to us. It makes us feel so loved and we are so honored and humbled that you guys would spend your time with us. I know time is the most precious thing that you have. And the fact that you take the time to just tune in with us, listen to our crazy stories and these topics just means the absolute world to us. We cannot thank you enough from the bottoms of our hearts. We love doing this and we would probably 
probably be sitting here on a Saturday night drinking together anyway, saying, hey, did you know this about sunscreen? Because <laughs> that's just the kind of people that we are. But the fact that we get to share it with you guys makes it so much more special. So we just want to say thank you from the bottoms of our hearts. And on that note, if, if you guys would feel so compelled, it would mean the world to us if you would pop over to your review page on whether you're listening on Apple or Spotify or Google, wherever you get your podcasts. It helps us tremendously if you would be so kind as to leave us a five-star rating or a review and let us know what you love about our show. We want to bring you the content that you want to hear and, and to keep it fresh. So we love to connect with you on our Facebook. We love to hear from you on your reviews. And you can find us everywhere at at Mother Mayhem Podcast. I would also like to say, I mean, I back up everything that Miranda said, but I think that the most important part, and I know that's annoying and all of the podcasts that I listen to say that, like, like, share, review, blah, blah, blah. We all hear that all the time. Yeah. (laughs) But the reality of the situation is that I know that we would like to turn this into something like we would like it to be a thing and that at the end of the episode instead of telling you all to check out the Skin Cancer Foundation that we could be making a donation to the Skin oh Cancer gosh, Foundation. Oh my gosh, yes. 100%. Like, those are kind of dreams that Miranda and I have. Mm-hmm. We want to make a difference. We want to get information out there. We want you all to feel like you are not alone. I, I cannot be the only person that trips over speed bumps and hurts myself. <laughs> so seriously, like, share, subscribe, all of those things. Write us a review and uh, keep on listening. Mm-hmm. It helps us so much. And again, we're so thankful that we get to do this with you guys. Y'all mean the world to us. And we love you. If you like what you hear from us, be sure to follow our show. And if you really like us, you can leave us a review on the podcast platform of your choice. We want to be friends with you. Connect with us on social media by following at Mother Mayhem Podcast or email us directly at Mother Mayhem Podcast at gmail.com.